0: This week, a mystery dinosaur known only by its arms reveals its secrets.
1: They probably eat a
0: combination of
1: small animals and plants. Although to it, a small animal can include an animal probably about the size of a sheep.
2: And you've heard of exoplanets. Now we hear how exocomets can tell us how solar systems are formed.
1: Exocomets tell us
3: a different kind of information. We have here a more dynamical view on the planetary system.
0: Plus, chemists managed to create a previously mythical oxidation state. This is The Nature Podcast for October the 23rd, 2014. I'm Jeff Marsh.
2: And I'm Kerry Smith. First this week, that mystery dinosaur. Back in 1965, paleontologists working in Mongolia found some enormous fossil arms, but not much more of the animal that they came from. With so little to go on, they called the beast Deinochirus merificus, which means unusual terrible hands. But what the rest of this creature looked like, let alone which other dinosaurs it was related to, was complete guesswork. The search was on to find the rest of this humongous horror. It's taken 50 years of detective work, but the mystery has finally been solved. This week, paleontologists published the first complete picture of the long-limbed dino, and it turns out it's a bit of an oddball, with a duck-like bill, a camel-like hump, and an ostrich-like body. Marian Turner spoke with dinosaur expert Thomas Holtz from the University of Maryland, who started by telling her what scientists knew about Dynachyrus in 1965.
1: So what they had were these pair of 2.4-meter-long of arms um, of apparently a carnivorous dinosaur, a member of the group Theropoda, but much larger than any theropod arms ever discovered. And so sort of like the old maps with here there be dragons on the part where you haven't explored yet, it led people to wonder, what is the rest of this dragon like? So what happened next? For many decades, we had nothing more than these arms to look at, and the first paleontologists to work on it did notice some similarities to a group long known to paleontologists called the ornithomimids, uh, or ostrich dinosaurs, which were much smaller than Deinokyrus, but it was still uncertain, rightly so. We didn't have any positive information to go on other than this, these fragmentary, although gigantic arms. And then an expedition did come across the remains of large theropods in 2006 and 2009. And it was clear as they began to find the arms of these specimens that it was indeed Dynachyrus. They realized that the mystery was going to be solved. But they got another mystery on their hands because it was very clear when they were digging there that they weren't the first people to get to these skeletons.
2: Maybe we'll come back to those mystery missing bones in a minute. But before we do, what did they learn from the fossils that they did find?
1: The new material they found did demonstrate, yes, these were ornithomimosaurs, and among the very largest members of the theropods, the group that contains Tyrannosaurus rex. But in fact, it wasn't simply an ostrich dinosaur grown huge. That is, it wasn't like you, you put it in, in Adobe Illustrator and, and clicks enlarge 200%. Um, it actually was a very distinctive animal.
2: It certainly is distinctive. We're going to tweet an artist's reconstruction of what we now think Dynachyrus looked like, and it's a completely weird mishmash of features. Um, but back to those missing bones, what had happened to them?
1: Unfortunately, sometimes we get to a fossil after someone else has, and sometimes the interesting stuff has been taken away. But in this case, the story turned out well. An additional member of their team contacted them and said, I've seen a skull and some feet in private hands that appear to be from Dynachyrus, and there was some arrangements. These specimens were returned to Mongolia in May of this year. And it turned out not only were these fossils of, of Dinocyrus, they were fossils of one of the skeletons they had found.
2: And so what did the recovery of the feet and the skull add to the picture?
1: The lack of the feet um, was of some interest. The skull, of course, is the more interesting part, because... So much of the ecology of an animal is bound up with its with its head, and its skull is fantastically weird. If you first just take a glance at it, you might confuse it with the skull of a hadrosaur, a duckbill dinosaur. You know, we could have pictured that this weird humpbacked camelly-looking um, ostrich dinosaur had a normal ostrich dinosaur head, or maybe a slightly more robust one. I don't think anyone predicted without this discovery of, of the skull in the poacher's hands, that it was this flared, snouted, deep-jawed animal that it really is.
2: Is there anything else that we can learn from these fossils about its, its lifestyle?
1: We can recognize a number of, of attributes about its, its lifestyle. Uh, for example, its diet. They probably ate a combination of small animals and plants, although to it, a small animal can include an animal probably about the size of a sheep. But we happen to know uh, is the presence of fish bones and scales in the gut region. And so this Deinokyrus probably was able to wade out in the streams and munch up these small fish, but also go around, just turn around and browse on the trees and maybe nab a small baby dinosaur going by as well.
2: That was Thomas Holtz at the University of Maryland, and he says there are probably more dinos with mistaken identities, including yet another one also found in Mongolia and also known only by its arms. Read the News and Views article and the paper at nature.com nature.
0: Still to come, sports drinks for gladiators and jet-lagged gut microbes. But first, you've heard of exoplanets, planets orbiting other stars. We've found nearly 2,000 of those of late. But what about exocomets? Comets are balls of ice and rock formed during a solar system's turbulent toddler stage. Many comets get incorporated into planets, but some escape to live on as time capsules from those early years. Few comets outside our solar system have ever been studied, but they can reveal the history of a star system and how planets evolve. A group from the Paris Institute of Astrophysics analysed years of data on a very young and wild star system called Beta Pictoris, 63 light-years from Earth. Here, they struck exocomet gold. They've increased the whole of charted exocomets from just 11 to more than 500, the most complete census of comets around another star. Nature reporter Lizzie Gibney spoke to co-author Alain Lecavoulier, first asking how to spot the icy dust balls.
3: What you see is not the cometary nuclei itself but we see the dust and the gas in the tail and in the coma around the comet nuclei so we observe them when they pass in front of the star like for exoplanets uh, but there is a still uh, a big difference between the transit of exoplanet and transit of exocomet in the sense that when the planet pass in front of the star, there is a decrease of the starlight. This is seen in photometry. Here we saw the comet in spectroscopy. So we detect the gas thanks to the lines in the spectroscopy uh, of the star.
4: So so we learn about the, the materials, the chemistry that's in the tail of the comet by just looking at the light?
3: Yes, so thanks to the spectroscopy we learn, uh, we have information on the chemistry but also on the physics especially we know the velocity of the gas, the size of the object, and by consequence, we infer a lot of information on the orbital properties of the object.
4: So you you studied comets in Beta Pictoris, and what did you learn about them?
3: We discovered that there are two families of exocomets, which are much different one to the other. Uh, The first family, is composed of uh, comets which are rather old, and uh, the second family is composed of comets which appear to be very active in evaporation, and which may come from uh, the breakdown of a single or a few bigger objects.
4: So, if these comets, this family, were created by the fragmentation of, of, of some other object, I suppose that tells us about some of the history of that of that star system.
3: Yes. It tells us that this system is very active. We already knew that this system is very active with collisions because we see dust uh, surrounding this young star. But uh, here we have uh, uh, another, another element coming from the uh, collisions in this system, which is bigger fragment composed of uh, cometary nuclei, which we see when they pass in front of the star.
4: And so you said this is a very active star system, and it's very young, so um, not not that long formed. How would it compare with our solar system? Is this what what our solar system would have looked like a few billion years ago?
3: Oh yes, quite similar to what uh, looked the solar system. Just after it formed, the biggest planets are already formed, but there are still a large amount of uh, remaining material which has been used to form planets. We are in the kind of phase, we could call it the cleaning phase of the planetary system just after the formation.
4: So this is the kind of bombardment period then perhaps. It seems like comets can tell us an awful lot about a about a star system. At the moment though, everyone seems to be looking at exoplanets rather than exocomets. Um, which do you think are more exciting?
1: Well,
3: I, I would not put uh, exoplanets in competition with exocomets. Both of them tell us a lot of information on what's happening in uh, planetary systems. And it's still very interesting to look at exoplanets and to see the variety and different kind of planets we see in planetary systems. But exocomets tell us uh, a different kind of information. So what uh, are the interactions between the planets themselves and uh, minor bodies. And there is also interaction between the dust and the gas in the planetary system and the minor bodies themselves. So we have here a more dynamical view on the planetary system.
0: That was Alain Lecavillier talking to Lizzie Gibney.
2: Now it's time for some short, sharp science. It's the research highlights, read by Noah Baker.
5: Roman gladiators were vegetarians who mixed their own energy drinks after fights. That's according to a study of bones found in a gladiator cemetery in Turkey. Archaeologists analyzed the chemical composition of bone samples from over 20 gladiators. Levels of elements like carbon and nitrogen showed their staple foods were lowly crops like wheat, barley, and beans. A dull diet, you might think, but then gladiators were often criminals, prisoners of war, or slaves. There was one dietary highlight. High strontium levels suggested that they ate plant ash. Ancient texts mention a medicinal ash drink called pixis served after fights for pain relief. Delish. Check out PLOS One for more. Gut bacteria get jet lag too. Researchers working with mice found that gut microbes have daily rhythms, just like their hosts. They manipulated these rhythms by feeding mice at weird times, or jet lagged the mice by flying them to San Diego, only joking, by advancing their lights on time by eight hours, then reverting it back a few days later. The gut microbes lost their rhythm and their composition changed. Jet-lagged humans show similar changes after transatlantic trips. Confused microbes could explain why shift workers are at higher risk of obesity and diabetes. Find out more in Cell.
0: One small step for oxidation states, one great leap for fundamental chemistry. In case your memory of the periodic table is as hazy as mine, here's a bit of a refresher. The elements are arranged according to some key properties, such as how many electrons they have in their outer shells. And this isn't just a neat filing system. It allows you to make predictions about how they'll behave in chemical reactions. Chemical reactions are all about the trading and sharing of electrons. And an element in a reaction has something called an oxidation state. This basically describes how many electrons have been gained or lost in that reaction. When you get up to the more complicated compounds, electrons aren't completely lost. They're part shared with surrounding elements. But to simplify things, chemists still talk about a formal oxidation state, which just assumes a simple process of give and take. And if you look in a modern textbook, the highest formal oxidation state is plus 8, a loss of 8 electrons. But theoretically, there's no reason that it had to stop there. Sebastian Hagenstab-Reidel, a professor of inorganic chemistry at the Free University in Berlin, has spent most of his career hunting for new oxidation states. And he and his team have just smashed the record. They've managed to push an atom of iridium to its electron-swapping limits, up to a formal oxidation state of nine. We'll hear how he got there in just a second, but first, let's revisit the basics.
6: So if we like to oxidize, this means to catch some electrons from the atom and if we do this for example we go to the positive oxidation states for example to oxidize element from oxidation state two to oxidation state three we have to take out one electron and this electron has to go somewhere so what we need is also another atom or another molecule which catches this extra electron
0: why do chemists get excited about compounds containing elements with unusual oxidation states?
6: Usually we know a range of oxidation states for the elements but it's not logic why at some point an element stops at the given oxidation state. So we always like to push these elements to the limit to also prove our concepts of the chemical bond for example. There was so far the highest oxidation state of eight for example, in osmium tetroxide or for some xenon species. But we have never managed to go beyond 8. And now in this experiment, we show that we can indeed go further. It's a formal concept. But in this formal concept, we can reach also the oxidation state 9 for this iridium compound.
0: Why was iridium the, the right choice for the job? Okay, we now
6: from the oxidation states of the periodic table that we can reach the oxidation state 7 for the element rhenium. Next is osmium, which can reach the oxidation state 8, because it has one more electron than the rhenium. And then the next element is iridium, which has again one electron more than the osmium. And so far we have not managed to get the last electrons out of iridium. But now with this new technique, it was possible to take out the last electron, and to form the new oxidation state 9 because it has 9 outer electrons, which one can take away.
0: Okay, so the compound in which iridium had this oxidation state of 9 was called iridium tetroxide. Tell us what that molecule looks like.
6: This is a tetrahedral molecule with 4 oxygens coordinated in a tetrahedral fashion. So every oxygen atom takes 2 electrons out of the iridium atom. So 4 times 2 makes 8. And then there is a last electron sitting at the iridium, which we take away by our mass spec to form the cation. So we have taken all 9 outer electrons away and we have formally the oxidation state
0: 9. What is it that happens in the mass spectroscopy machine that gets rid of that last electron?
6: Yeah, this is an ionization source in principle, the mass spectrometer. So we have to get out the last electron by ionization. Also detect which kind of molecules we have formed. We have done quantum chemical calculations to show that taking the last electron out of this iridium tetroxide molecule would be a stable compound.
0: The last part of the process then is where you shine this laser at it to check that it is in the right configuration. Yeah, right. So now that you've proved that you can produce this iridium with an oxidation state of 9, what are the applications? Can you bottle it and sell it?
6: <laughs> this would be nice. This would be, of course, very interesting because it would be a strong oxidizer. And we know, for example, from the osmium tetroxide, so the element left to the iridium, that this is used, for example, in organic reactions. So it could be a potential oxidizer, and it might show also some interesting reactions. But uh, so far all attempts to catch this molecule in larger quantities are unsuccessful.
0: But certainly the result of this is that a lot of textbooks are going to need to be edited.
6: This I think for sure.
0: Can you make an oxidation state of 10?
6: Yeah, in principle I would say of course one could now try to go one further to platinum, that would be the next element to the right from iridium, which has again one electron more, but then we increase the charge. I have not done such quantum chemical calculations, but it could perhaps be possible. Yeah. So there is potential for many other researchers to try to go beyond the oxidation state 9, I would say.
0: Pushing the electron envelope. <laughs> Sebastian hagenstabt Rydel there on the line from Berlin.
2: Now, this week, paleoanthropologists are revisiting a controversial fossil find. It's been 10 years since the discovery of a tiny little human-like species, Homo floresiensis, or the Hobbit. In a special podcast extra, Ewan Calloway hosts a discussion of how the find came about and how the Hobbit has changed our view of human evolution. Here's a taster.
7: On October 27th, 2004, the world's media went crazy over a little fossil.
2: Today, scientists announced they've found the bones of a type of human they've never seen before. In some ways,
0: anthropologists have like unearthed the remains of the little brother our species never knew we had Homo floresiensis, or hobbit. It looked
5: very strange, small brained, had a brow ridge, looked very primitive.
7: There are
2: tools in the cave, and there were these giant Komodo dragons, uh, remains of them, and these little elephant-like creatures. And as he talked, I remember saying to him, are you making this
7: up? Bert Roberts, what made The Hobbit so utterly strange? It's
5: in the wrong place, at the wrong time, it looks completely odd, and of course it's living at about the same time that modern humans were sweeping through that part of Southeast Asia and into Australia. So here was a chance of some interaction between another kind of human and ourselves. Well I think it's still a challenging find and I I think we, we don't yet
0: really know what its significance is for human evolution. Find the full episode at nature.com slash nature slash podcast or on your podcast feed. Out now.
2: News time now and joining me in the studio is online news editor Davide Castelvecchi. Now Davide, the first story you've brought with you today is actually kind of related to some research that nature has published over the years on on pathogens and how tweaking them can make them more dangerous.
7: Yes, indeed. The controversies over laboratories that try to maybe uh, crossbreed various different kinds of flu or to make flu uh, more easily transmissible among lab animals, essentially to be one step ahead to see how they might counter ways in which the flu virus can evolve.
2: And those studies have been kind of controversial when they've been first reported. What's the latest development though?
7: So now the White House, the Obama administration, has decided to they announce a new policy whereby the federal government will stop funding such research research that deliberately uh, changes pathogens and, and make, makes them uh, gain new uh, capabilities. It's called gain-of-function research.
2: Right, so this isn't, you know, a blanket ban on everybody working on pathogens and studying them, but it's precisely these studies that will adapt the genome, if you like, of a virus and um, make it more dangerous.
7: Correct, but, but in part these uh, announcements were controversial because apparently the policy is as formulated, as announced last week, is a bit ambiguous, so people are not sure what experiments will be affected. One problem is that viruses are constantly mutating themselves, so if a mutation arises in the lab, does that count as gain-of-function, even though it wasn't deliberately inserted into the virus?
2: The piece details a couple of examples of research that's prompted, I suppose, this freeze.
7: Yes, there was one famous or notorious example, depending on your point of view, in 2011 at the University of Wisconsin-Madison when researchers deliberately made the avian flu transmissible among ferrets. And ferrets are a lab model for how the, the flu transmits among humans. Now, these are highly secure labs where things are not supposed to leak out. But uh, critics said, well, if you make this new virus, the avian flu was not transmissible among humans before. If you make it transmissible in in the lab and then it leaks out, it could be a big problem.
2: Okay, and we should say that was actually a Nature paper from 2011. I think I remember covering that. And are other researchers, um, either who do these studies or who are observing these studies, are they concerned at all that we might, you know, be able to learn less about these kinds of pathogens if this research is is stopped.
7: Yes, in fact, one researcher has described this as a knee-jerk reaction uh, to criticism. Others, however, have said that this was a welcome move.
2: And this stops federal funding, government funding for this research. I mean, is it likely that much of it will carry on in, in private labs?
7: It's probably unlikely because pharmaceutical companies, they don't typically do such experiments. There's not a lot of money. In uh, this is really basic research that doesn't lead to new pharmaceuticals necessarily or vaccines.
2: Some bad news, again, depending on your point of view. If you're a flu researcher who uh, actively tweaks these things, probably bad news for your federal uh, grants. Um, not much better news for vultures in the second story that you've brought us.
7: Yes, we've, re- we've reported uh, unusually about the death of a single animal. It was a vulture that was found dead in Spain, and the reason why it raises such such uh, worries is that it was found to be to have been poisoned by a pharmaceutical that is normally used in uh, cattle farms. This is a class of pharmaceuticals that are used for a wide range of, uh, of of conditions known as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or NSAIDs, and... Um, the, the the scary thing is that in India, the use of these drugs in cattle has caused a dramatic collapse in the population of vultures. So vultures that feed on dead cattle, because this, this, um, this drug is actually toxic to vultures much more so than it is to, to the cattle, the vultures then die. Now, a similar drug to the one that caused the population collapse in India has been approved for uh, uh, for farm use in Spain. And now, for the first time, a, a bird has, has been found dead that had signs of poisoning from the drug.
2: So the story repeats itself um, on an, on another continent.
7: Yeah, so now people are worried that there could be the same kind of collapse in, in Europe that has been seen in India.
2: And um, the stereotype of vultures is that they're they're not very nice, they're sort of scavengers, people don't like them. But this is a story about vultures, but it's also not a story quite about vultures, right?
7: Well, it's a story about industrial farming, perhaps, and how there's many more mammals in farms than there are in the wild. Whatever we do, you know, whether, it's, whether, the, whether it's antibiotics or uh, medicinal drugs, to treat those animals ends up somehow in the environment.
2: We know that this drug has this negative effect on vultures, but what about other, other birds of prey?
7: Some scientists are worried because uh, vultures are not the only animals that feed on carcasses. There's also uh, birds such as eagles or kites. And it's unclear uh, what effects these these uh, drugs could have on them.
2: And would it be simply a case of switching to another drug that didn't have such a toxic effect?
7: There, there are drugs that are known to have effects on, uh, sp- uh, specifically on vultures. And perhaps there, there could be safer replacements. So um, so now some, some activists are, are campaigning for Europe to ban, in particular the European Medicines Agency, to ban specific drugs that are known to cause harm to these birds.
2: Um, thanks, A. More on those stories at nature.com slash news.
0: And don't forget to check out the Hobbit Roundtable discussion and tell us what you think on Twitter at naturepodcast or on email podcast at nature.com. Also, last week saw the second episode of Backchat published, so that lot should keep you busy for a while. I'm Jeff Marsh.
2: And I'm Kerry Smith.